All right, Amazing Grace. We continue with our preaching series, Amazing Grace. Tonight's lesson, The True Plan of Salvation, will be lesson number two in that particular series. There are several ways to explain the following statement. Listen. We are saved by grace through faith. How many times have we heard that? We are saved by grace through faith. Number one, we could say, well, because of God's grace, we are saved through a system of faith. We could translate it that way, explain it that way. Or we could say, through God's kindness, we are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. We could say it like that. Or we could say, God is so merciful that He offers us salvation based on our faith, not based on our ability to be perfect. We could say it like that. We believe this basic teaching of the Christian religion, you know, the idea that we are saved by grace through faith, we believe this basic teaching, but we often try to change it into something else. For example, we often try to change it to God provides the grace, we provide the faith. I'll explain that in a minute. Or we try to change it to God's grace is that He reveals what we must do in order to be saved. In other words, what is God's grace? Well, He's revealed to us the plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, be baptized. You know, that's grace. Or we try to change it to God's grace is based on our faith. Now these, these ideas, they're very close, but not quite, not quite we are saved by grace through faith. Our problem with grace many times is that we have a hard time understanding such a godly concept and as proud and sinful people we cannot bring ourselves to accept free love and complete mercy because we are not capable of free love and complete mercy. We can't do it. And it's very hard for us to get our minds wrapped around this idea. Usually what we end up doing is only paying lip service to the idea of grace, but then reducing this core teaching of the gospel into a kind of a law work system or some other concept which is not biblical or not biblically accurate. For example, we turn the teaching about grace into you know, God provides the grace and we provide the faith. I mean, I've heard people actually say that from the pulpit. The idea here is that salvation is some kind of a prize inside of a safe and God provides one of the numbers of the combination which is grace and we provide the other number of the combination which is faith and you know God is uh, grace is God's responsibility faith is man's responsibility and each side contributes something to produce the final result. A couple of problems with this kind of thinking. Number one We have to understand we contribute nothing to salvation. Not a thing. There's nothing we can do. There's not even even the act of believing that has any value in actually producing our salvation. If faith could in some way be counted as something we contributed or paid for or did to earn our forgiveness and salvation, then the question would be, well, just how much faith do we need? Or what quality does that faith have to have? Or does that faith need to be in order to exchange it for salvation? See what I mean? 
You know, faith is not something we give or exchange. Faith is the way that we actually receive the free gift of salvation. God produced salvation through Jesus Christ, as Dayton said in his prayer, and he offers it absolutely free to those who receive or accept it by faith, as opposed to receiving it by earning it. Or as opposed to receiving it by working at it or knowing something that nobody else knows. You can't receive it by earning it. You can't receive it by exchanging something. You can't receive it through deserving it. You can't receive it through knowledge or culture or force or religiosity or magic. You can only receive it through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you receive it. Another problem with the God provides the grace, we provide the faith idea. This takes the glory away from Christ. I mean, if in some way we can provide something, then the glory belongs to us too, a certain portion of it, because after all, we provided something. The whole point of God saving man by grace through faith is to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ and the love of the Father. That's what John is talking about, John 3.16, or Jesus, you know, for God so loved the world. Man's pride would love to take some of this glory and also refuses to be totally helpless and in need of undeserved mercy. Another inaccurate concept of grace. We talked about the idea, you know, God provides the grace, we provide the faith. Inaccurate. Another inaccurate concept that we've talked about, grace is the revelation of the plan of salvation. In other words, the substance of grace is that God lets you know know, what you needed to do in order to be saved. The idea that God's grace is that He shows us how to be saved, that He reveals to us that you have to hear and believe and confess and repent and be baptized. People think that's grace. I've said before that the plan of salvation is that God chose to save mankind through a system of faith rather than a system of law. That's the plan of salvation. The idea that God decided to save man through a system of grace rather than a system of law, this is the things into which the angels long to look, 1 Peter 1.12. That's what the angels wanted to think or wanted to figure out. And the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, Romans 16.25, that we'd be saved through faith in Christ. That's the mystery. That's the plan that God came up with from before the beginning of the world. And so the mystery, the secret, the plan of God was that man would be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, the work that Christ would do on man's behalf, that was the mystery. The cross, that was the mystery. Not the fact that you had to hear and repent and be bad. That wasn't the mystery. Maybe I've been part of the mystery. You know, when we preach the plan or the five steps When we preach that as the gospel, what we're doing is we're preaching salvation by knowledge. You didn't know this, now we're letting you know. So you're saved because you know, you now know. That's not the gospel. If you know and obey accurately the plan, you'll be saved. God's grace is that He reveals this plan to us. How many times have we heard people preach that? I repeat again, that's not the gospel message. That's not the good news. 
The good news is that because God is kind, He sent Jesus to pay the price of death for our sins and we can be forgiven of these by believing in Him. That's the good news. And this good news, this grace, motivates one of two responses. One, disbelief. And how do we express disbelief? Well, we express disbelief by rejecting the message and a continual pursuit in the world. And the other response to that message is belief, which the gospel teaches is expressed in a variety of recognizable ways, including confession of Christ, repentance of sin, baptism and more. Repentance, confession, baptism, these are ways that the believer expresses his faith in Jesus Christ. It is not the plan of salvation. It is not an exchange for salvation. It is the way one receives the salvation freely offered. Baptism, of course, does save us. Why? Because it is an expression of our faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it is the expression of faith required by God written in the Bible. But don't get me wrong, it's not the gospel. If one truly believes in Jesus Christ, his Savior, the Bible, not the Church of Christ, the Bible says that this faith, faith rather, will be evident in an open confession of that faith, a changed life, immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins. We have to remember to know the difference between the gospel and the response to the gospel. A more subtle misconception is the following. God's grace is based on our faith. I've heard people say that. This is a tricky idea. On the surface, it looks okay, but what does the sentence really say? This sentence suggests that our faith is in faith and not in Christ. In other words, I have confidence in my faith. I have confidence in its strength and in its accuracy. Again, God's grace is totally based in and on Jesus Christ, not the quality or quantity of our faith. Today, you know, our society places a lot of importance on the act of believing. You've got to believe. You believe in yourself. Believe everything will be okay. Today, faith is no more than just positive thinking or willpower. But I want to tell you something. Faith's power is in its object. Faith is no better than what faith believes in. For example, if I believe that the the tree outside, that big tree out in our yard, if I believe that that tree is God, and I go and I offer praise to that tree, and I sing to that tree, and I'm on my knees in front of that tree, you know what, I even cut myself, and I force blood to come out of my own body, and I smear it on the tree as an offering of my life. I mean, would you say I'm kind of devoted? Would anybody question my devotion to that tree? No. But could that tree answer any of my prayers? No. Why? Because that tree does not have the power to do anything for me, no matter how much or how devoted I am in worshiping the tree. You see, the power that saves us is Jesus Christ. He's the object of faith. He's the one who saves. He's the gift of grace. He accomplishes our salvation. It isn't the strength of my faith. It's the object of my faith that makes the difference. 
You don't believe me? Look at the examples I'll give you. Let's talk about Paul, right? The apostle. Paul had religious knowledge. He had a miraculous appearance by Jesus in preaching to him. He had the full gospel preached to him by Ananias and he believed. So strong was his faith that immediately after he was baptized, immediately after he began preaching Christ. That's how powerful his faith was. How much knowledge he had. All right, let's take another person who was saved. The thief on the cross. He saw a crucified Jesus forgive his enemies, so he asked for that same forgiveness. He saw no miracles. He had no visions. He was irreligious. No one explained the gospel to him in detail. He simply believed in Jesus. And both of these men were equally saved. And both of them are in heaven with God. Why? Because despite the difference in the quality and the strength and the knowledge of their faith, they both believed in the same person. They both believed in Jesus Christ. The object of their faith was the same. And so the result of their faith was the same. In this world many people believe, which simply means to accept something is true. The belief that leads to salvation, however, is the one where a person accepts as true the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the object of faith that has some impact. That particular belief expressed in repentance and baptism, that's what saves the soul. Don't envy another person's faith or knowledge or religiosity. Don't be proud of your faith. Remember that grace is extended to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Our faith is equal and equally saves us if we are focused on the right object and that is Jesus Himself. All right, let's talk about uh, grace and faith plus, shall we? The elements of our salvation are God's grace and our faith. But the Bible qualifies that these are not alone. Listen carefully. These are not alone. Therefore, only by grace, but not grace alone. You see, God's grace is His kindness, His mercy, His generosity, and His love. Uh, Grace is God's character. It's His attitude. But it wasn't just His grace and attitude that saved us. This character and attitude motivated him to do something. Yes, it's God's grace that saves us, but a grace that works to accomplish that salvation. For example, it was God's grace that was working to establish the Jewish nation. It was God's grace that was working to send Jesus. His grace working to send the Holy Spirit. His grace working to send out the apostles to preach. His grace working that established the church. His grace working that maintains the church throughout history. His grace is always working. Only grace could and would work in this way to accomplish our salvation. Pride wouldn't do it. Law wouldn't do it or couldn't do it. Guilt or self-interest wouldn't do it. Compulsion wouldn't do it. Only grace would and could accomplish all the things that I've just talked about. All right. Well, in the same way, only faith, only faith, but not faith alone. See the difference? 
The only way man can be saved is to accept the gift of salvation from God by faith. That's the only way. You can't receive it by works, by law, by knowledge, by culture, by trying, by willpower. Those ways don't work. Only by faith. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't exchange for it. You can't know it. You can't serve God for it. Faith is the only channel by which the gift of forgiveness and eternal life is received. However, faith is a living thing. It's not just a concept. It's not just a thought. If grace had not acted, man would not be saved. Well, in the same way, if faith does not act, does not express itself, does not show itself to be true faith in Christ, it cannot receive salvation. The very nature of grace is that it must do something. The very nature of grace moves God to create, to bless, to save, and so on and so forth. If it doesn't, it's not grace. Well, the very nature of faith is that it must be tested. In other words, it must demonstrate its genuineness. It isn't biblical saving faith unless it strives to show itself to be genuine. And the Bible describes the way that faith shows itself to be genuine and how genuine faith actually blossoms. Think of faith blossoming you know, like a flower. God does not demand or command that a rose seed become a rose. It's programmed for this once the seed is planted. Well, in the same way, if the seeds of Christian faith from the word of God are planted in a believing heart, They will grow, they will blossom, and they will produce repentance and an acknowledgement of Christ as Lord and the willingness to be baptized and an eagerness to follow Christ and the hatred of sin and the longing for heaven, the love of the church, desire to know the word, desire to obey God. All those things are things that faith produces, that faith blossoms. Faith produces all the things that I've just mentioned and more. And it does it naturally. We are saved by grace, of course. A grace that works to accomplish our salvation. And we're saved by grace through faith, of course. A faith that demonstrates itself as genuine by what it produces, how it blossoms. Now, there are some in the Bible who had a problem with God's grace. You know, there's a danger of certain individuals in the church refusing to accept grace on God's terms. There's also a danger of trying to accept Christ, but not the grace that He offers. And the Lord warns people about this particular phenomenon in different lessons. Go to Luke, will you, chapter 7. I'll give you a couple of examples of people who had trouble with grace. The first one I want to talk about is Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. I won't read the whole story, just verse 36 to 39. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 39 says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, She brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet weeping, 
She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And it goes on further than there. Jesus talks to him about this. But I just wanted to read that section. What did this Pharisee want from Jesus? Well, he wanted to associate with him as a teacher. He wanted to hear him preach. He wanted to share Jesus' popularity. But what didn't the Pharisee want? And we read about this a little bit later. Well, he didn't want to give Jesus due respect. He didn't want to be in a position to need Jesus' mercy. And he certainly did not want to offer grace to the woman. The Pharisees you know, at that time, they waited for a time, at the beginning anyways, to include Jesus into their group of teachers. After all, He was a dynamic and popular teacher. Maybe He'll be one of us. Maybe. But what they didn't want was to need mercy or to be forced to offer mercy. If you need mercy, well then you have to be prepared to offer mercy. See the, the problem there? Their hard hearts had become this way because they didn't see the need for God's mercy for themselves. And they rarely had the impulse, that heart softening impulse to offer mercy to other people. And this is the great danger of self-righteousness. See the point I'm getting to? If we never feel that we need mercy in any way, we're okay, we're good. Well, I'm good, God, I don't need your mercy. I'm good, I'm taking care of my business. If that's how we feel, That's usually how we feel towards other people too. We're not ready to offer mercy to others. I got mine. I got mine. I'm okay. Why should I give you some? I'm taking care of my business. Why don't you take care of your business? So you see what I'm saying? If we can't recognize our actual need for God's mercy, we rarely feel the impulse to show mercy to someone else. Let's talk about Jonah. You won't have to go there, but we all know about Jonah and the the great fish that swallowed him and so on and so forth. Now the Jews of Jonah's time, they hated the Assyrians, right? And they had good reason to hate the Assyrians. The Assyrians had attacked them numerous times and they had to pay tribute like a tax, uh, uh, an extortion tax to the Assyrians. It was very simple. You pay the tax and if you don't pay the tax, we'll come in and kill you. So they paid the tax. And they were also pagan idolaters on top of that. So Jonah, imagine a good Jew is called by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. Those were, that was the capital city of Assyria. Now we know the story of his response and his effort to run away. But the true story behind his effort to flee and not do God's will was evident. He could not accept God's graciousness towards his enemies. God wanted to do something good for the Assyrians. And Jonah was not going to have any of it. You know, the, the, the Pharisees, you know, they saw no need for grace for themselves or others. You know, in the story I was telling you before about the Pharisees. Well, Jonah was happy to receive grace for himself, but he was not ready for God to extend it to someone else and certainly not his enemies. I mean, when he was first approached to go preach repentance to the Ninevites, he ran away in order not to do God's will. 
In chapter 4 verse 2 Jonah acknowledges why he did this. Not because of laziness or disbelief or fear. He ran away, he says, because of God's grace. I knew you were good. I knew you were merciful. I knew you'd do the right thing. But I didn't want you to do the right thing for those guys. He knew that if they repented, God would forgive them and he did not want to be the instrument through which God's grace was offered to his enemies. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever refused to be the instrument of God's grace, God's kindness, God's generosity to somebody else? And so after he was swallowed by the fish and then released through God's mercy, remember he should have died, but through God's mercy he lived. He finally went and he preached to the Ninevites. And when they repented, again he was very angry. Not at the Ninevites. He was angry with God. Think about it now. The Ninevites were forgiven, but the Ninevites, you know, they didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to keep all the Jewish laws and worship procedures and all that kind of stuff. They didn't have to pay back all the money that they had taken from the Jews. They didn't have to make up for all the harm they had caused. God just forgave them. It's good, he said. We're good. God simply forgave them because they believed the message and they repented. Because of His grace, they receive forgiveness through faith. And Jonah was so upset that in chapter 4 verse 8 he says, death is better to me than life. He'd rather die than see his enemies be treated right by God. Jonah was angry because God was too good, too kind, too gracious to Jonah's enemies. And then the the third The third group I want to talk about, go to Matthew this time. I will read a little bit of this. In Matthew chapter 20, all right? Let's go to Matthew chapter 20. Give you a chance to get there. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day... Uh, he sent them into his vineyard and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went again. He went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, well, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard, too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Isn't it lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Now note that the all day workers were all angry. Why? 
Do you think that they had a valid reason to be so? You know, believe it or not, most people see this situation as unfair. You know, even though they say, oh, you know, God can do what He wants, you know, and the landowner, he can, he can do what He wants. But down deep inside was saying, man, I wouldn't want to be those guys that work you know, from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. and get paid one thing, and the guys who work from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. make the same money as me. I mean, it's just human nature, right? But nobody was cheated. Everybody received the wages that they were promised. I mean, the day workers received the agreed upon amount. It was no one's business or judgment how the boss spent his money. That's true. In the beginning, the day workers were happy and they were eager to find work for a fair pay in the first place. So what were they really angry about? Well, they were angry about the boss's generosity. He seemed more generous to some than to others. They overlooked the fact that they had a generous boss who had been generous to them first and then to the others afterwards because he was generous to them. They had no work and he gave them work. And you know, he could have bargained with them. You know what I'm saying? Because they were in the inferior position. They had no job. They were out of work. He could have said, you know, the normal pay is a denarius, but you guys are out of work. You're, in a, you know, you're, you're looking for work. So I'll tell you what, I'll give you work. I'll pay you half a denarius. You think they would have taken the work? Absolutely. They're out of work. They need the money. But no, even though they were in a bad way and they needed the work, he paid them the just wage. He was a just man. So giving them work at fair pay when they had no work, that was generous. And then giving others work at the last minute for the same pay, that was also generous. We can't accept a measure of generosity for ourselves and then complain if somebody else is also a benefactor of the same person's generosity. You know, the day workers felt that they had earned their salary and they wanted everybody else to earn it as well. We worked hard for what we had and we want everybody else to work hard for what they have. Well, you know what? Some Christians are like that because they think they've earned their way into God's grace. The Jews thought that they had earned it as God's chosen people. The late workers did not trust in their work They trusted in their boss to do the right thing and they were rewarded for their trust, not their work. The basis of grace, my friends, is trust. God offers it to those who trust Him, not to those who think that they have somehow earned His grace. And then one more, one more passage, back in Luke this time, Luke chapter 18, Beginning in verse 9, we'll just read a few few of these uh, verses. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. The Pharisee and the publican, of course, something, a passage we're very familiar with. And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And he said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what was the difference between these two men? Well, when it comes to God's grace, the Pharisee thought he deserved it. And the publican realized he needed it. When it came to God's grace, the Pharisee didn't want to need and the publican didn't want to die. And the Pharisee never really knew God, did he? And the publican found peace in the arms of God's grace. The Pharisee would have been upset if he could have known what God had done. Remember, imagine if the Pharisee of God talked to him and said, okay, you, you get nothing. This guy behind you that you have contempt for, he's forgiven. He's a son of mine. He's a daughter of mine. Don't raise your hands now. But answer this only in your own minds to yourself. In all honesty, who are we most like many times? The publican or the Pharisee? The reality of the situation is that all of us are in the condition of the publican. Whether we realize it or not, that's us. All of us should be saying, God, have mercy on me. God, I've just realized some of the things that I've been thinking. Oh, have you never been there? Have you never you know, said to yourself, you're like standing on the edge of the dark abyss and you're looking down saying, how could I even think such a thing? Oh my God, how could I think such a, never mind do it, how could I think it? How could anyone go through an experience like that and not realize they absolutely need God's mercy? Not just that time. With every breath we need His mercy. So we all have problems with grace from time to time. We either have trouble forgiving ourselves and we can't accept that God will forgive us even if we don't want to forgive ourselves. He still has forgiven us. Sometimes, you know, that's the problem we have. And then other times we're angry when others who have hurt us find forgiveness from God while we're still harboring resentment towards them. I'll give you a perfect example. There was a woman once in a class that I was teaching who was upset at the thought that her husband who left her could be forgiven and actually start a new life. And that really bothered her because she was the victim. She was the victim and she was upset with the thought that God could actually have mercy on that rotten guy who dumped her. She wanted him to suffer, not be forgiven. And sometimes we have trouble with those who claim to be Christian, but who may not agree with us on every point of doctrine, for example. Of course, some things in the Bible we we cannot compromise. We shouldn't compromise on anything in the Bible. You can't call a person a brother or sister in the Lord if they haven't been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's pretty basic stuff. But sometimes there are those who refuse to allow God's grace to reach those who may have a different view of how the end times are going to be or believers who worship differently than we do. You know, maybe they only use one cup when they have, uh, when they have communion. Maybe they clap during their worship or hold their hand. You know what I'm saying? They just do things differently. Here's my question. 
My question is, does grace cover moral failure only? What about failure in understanding or a legitimate and sincere difference of opinion? Isn't God's grace working there? I'm not saying we have to change what we believe is biblical in the areas of morality or worship. I'm simply saying God's grace is for all sinners and all sins. And all of us are sinners, including those who miss the mark on certain you know, uh, Bible ideas or ways of doing things in the church. You know, the Pharisees, they were expert at discriminating against those who didn't understand or practice all the minutiae of the law. And I'm saying, let's not be like that, please. We can accept those that God accepts without approving of their errors. How else will we ever love and teach others if we don't extend the same grace to other people as Christ has so kindly accepted or offered to us? I want you to remember something. Every time we refuse to recognize and allow God's grace for somebody else, we automatically stop the flow of grace for ourselves. I look at grace you know, like a shower coming, like this big shower head. You know? And wherever I go, God's grace you know, is just flowing over me and cleansing me of sin and, and unacceptability and the filth and unrighteousness. You know? Wherever I go, that shower of grace is, is cleansing me and keeping me clean because you know? I'm falling in the mud and I'm dusty and I make mistakes and, and so on and so forth. Right? But the day I turn around and I say, I don't know what's wrong with that guy. I don't think that guy deserves the grace. I, he's, he's not living up to the standard that I think that guy ought to live up to. You know what? I think I'm going to turn off the tap of his, you know, his shower of grace. I, I'm just going to go over there and turn that off because he doesn't deserve it. But you know what? When you're turning off his shower of grace, God's up there turning yours off too. Just think about that. It's human nature to judge and it's human nature to be critical. I ought to know because I'm human and I'm critical and judgmental. But just remember, before you give in to that impulse, just remember what actually is happening in the spirit when you do that. And let's also remember to preach the true plan of salvation so that we can encourage true and lasting conversions of those who are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, not saved through works or perfectionism or knowledge or effort. And finally, let's realize that God's gracious offer of forgiveness and eternal life are offered every time Jesus is preached. That's why it's not a Church of Christ thing that at the end of the sermon, Marty or myself or whoever is up here will offer an invitation We do it not as a tradition, we do it because every time Christ is preached, the grace of God is being offered to those who are hearing. And so in the same way, if this grace is calling you to repent, to be baptized, in other words, to express your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not done it, I say to you, don't fight it. Why are you fighting it? Stop fighting it. Simply allow the faith that you have to blossom into obedience. If you need to do that now, then we encourage you to do that as we stand and as we sing our song of encouragement.